been good to worship with you. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, worship team. I'm looking forward to this Saturday and getting a full hour extended set of worship, you leading uh, our community in worship of our God together. I would encourage you to be a part of that out at, uh, at the park uh, this Saturday afternoon. Uh, welcome to White Plains. My name is Gary, and I joyfully serve as the senior pastor here. And if you're new to us, I want to say a special welcome to you. Thank you for being our guest this morning. I have been praying for you. You are an answer to our prayers. I've been praying that God would be using uh, whatever you're going through this week to, to draw you to himself. Uh, thank you again for being our guest this morning. I hope that you find our church to be a warm and welcoming group of people. I do want to invite you this evening out to the high school for our uh, prayer walk for our school, as, for our school system as they start back this Wednesday. Uh, we do have rain plans uh, in case there's weather happening, but, uh, but would you join us um, out at the high school near the tennis courts? We'll start there. Uh, and walk through the different schools uh, and their campuses this evening as we pray uh, and read scripture and, uh, and ask God to, to bless our schools, bless our students and our, our teachers and staff. Um, in fact, let's, let's, let's go ahead and do a little bit of that this, this morning together. Let's pray for our schools. God, thank you uh, for your love of your people. Thank you for your love of Scottsville and Allen County. And Lord, I pray that as we uh, look at a new school uh, year starting this week. Lord, I pray that you would um, be at work. Lord, protect our kids, protect our teachers, our staff, the support staff uh, from the bus garage on up to the central office through all the schools. Uh, Lord, would you, would you be protecting our, our families and our kids and our students this year? Lord, would you, uh, as the video made mention of, would you give our kids opportunities to live out their faith in their in their classes and with their friends lord would this be a year that you would be at work in the lives of students and kids for your gospel for the for the glory of you and jesus or would you be at uh, at work um lord I'm, I'm thankful we are thankful that our schools have so many wonderful teachers and staff who love you uh, lord i pray that you would strengthen their faith uh, as they go through uh, this year it will be a hard year, like every other year, I'm sure. And Lord, I trust that you would be at work uh, strengthening them and encouraging them and being there with them as, as life unfolds. Lord, would you make this year a year that our teachers and our staff um, at the schools trust you more, trust you deeper, and that you would be um, blessing them in that trust. Lord, thank you again for... For this coming school year, we pray that you would be uh, glorified and magnified in this community, uh, and Lord, pray that you would uh, be there with the kids. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kids, it's good to see you here at church. We had fun last Wednesday. We baked some cookies, and we built a fort. Now, it was a bake-off, and it was difficult because we did boys versus girls, and according to everybody, the boys lost. So the girls won, uh, and I admit their cookies were a little bit uh, more better uh, in a winning way. The boys' cookies were bigger, though, but it wasn't a size thing. It was a taste thing. So, so guys, next, next time we, we bake off, we'll, we'll make them a little bit smaller, okay? I'm looking at you, Braxton. Um, family night starts back this Wednesday, and we're going to all start off, kids uh, through adults with the students, all of us will be over the chapel at 6 o'clock for worship. 
then the kids will break off with Jordan and Becca to have some fun activities and some teaching. The students will have some fun stuff with Cooper uh, in the student ministry room, and the adults uh, will hang out with me, and we'll talk about some angels. I uh, hope you can join us this Wednesday. Kids, thank you for being at church with us this morning. I'll go ahead and dismiss you to the lobby to be taken up to Kids Church. Kids Church is for kids in kindergarten through fifth grade. Uh, parents and grandparents, you'll be able to pick up your kids and grandkids after our service uh, in the lobby. So we're going to be starting a new series in the short letter of Jude. Um, do you know where Jude is? It's way back in the back, right before Revelation. Um, we're calling this series Unfollow because the letter is going to warn us against unfollowing Jesus. Uh, we're going to unpack that over the next few weeks. We're going to spend five weeks in this short little letter going over it verse by verse, studying it. Now, Jude tells us a lot in its short little uh, letter. And some of it, I've warned you over and over again, is going to be hard. But that's okay. The Bible should be hard, and it should say things to us that might be difficult. Jude is perhaps one of the most ignored letters of the New Testament. It's right before Revelation, so it's kind of like a flyover book. People are excited about getting into Revelation and all that weird stuff. They just sort of skip Jude. It's small. It's little. It doesn't, doesn't matter, but it does. Uh, it says a lot. Jude is often ignored because it quotes from at least one and alludes to another extra-canonical book. Now, that means a book that's not in the Bible. Jude quotes one book and alludes to another book that's not in the Bible. And honestly, that's a little odd to have a biblical book quoting a non-biblical book. And so people have struggled with that. But the Hebrew readers in the early church would have known about these other books, these extra-canonical books. And for whatever reason, they're just not included in the Old Testament. The two books that are referenced in Jude are First Enoch and The Assumption of Moses. Now, has anyone ever read First Enoch or The Assumption of Moses? One. Okay. Well, good. Um, I figured most of us hadn't. Most of us probably haven't even heard of... Maybe we've heard of First Enoch, but The Assumption of Moses is probably one of those books that we don't know much about. But um, Jude did read these books. The early church knew these books, and he quotes them in this letter. And I'll point out where he quotes them as we get to them in the next few weeks. Uh, but the other reason that people ignore Jude is because it's not a feel-good book. It's not a book that is, um, will make you feel good. It, it, he does say some things in, in his letter that you might disagree with you might have trouble agreeing with. And so it's easier just to ignore them than to read them. And I'm hoping that as we read them this, this, uh, the next few weeks that we will come to love them and appreciate what he has to say, even the hard stuff. Now, I picked this book to preach through uh, over a year ago. In fact, I've already um, mapped out all of 2024 messages uh, last month. And so this sermon series is not meant to call out anybody specifically. There's not anybody in my head that I'm preaching to with this book. This isn't a response to anything that's going on in these walls. It probably speaks more to our community's culture of being in the Bible Belt than specific issues that we're dealing with in these walls. But I would assume that there is something here for us. Uh, I did find out a couple weeks ago 
that a pastor friend of mine in Bowling Green is also going to be going through this book of Jude. And another friend of mine in Ohio, his church just went through it. So perhaps God is bringing Jude to our attention because he has something for us in its, pa- in its pages. And so let's trust God as we spend a few weeks uh, with Jude that he has something for us. This morning, we're going to be looking at the first four verses in Jude. Now, Jude only has one chapter, and we're going to be looking at these two verses in, uh, these four verses in two different translations. And so if you didn't bring both your Bibles, um, I do have them in your bulletin. Uh, we're going to be looking at the ESV and the New Living Translation of, of Jude 1 through 4. And if you remember from Uh, the sermon series, How to Change Your World in Just 20 Minutes a Day, I gave you the spectrum of Bible translation philosophies. And I generally preach from the ESV. That's a word-for-word translation. The New Living Translation is a meaning-for-meaning translation. And so we're going to look at both of these as we look through Jude um, this morning. So let's look at Jude uh, 1 through 4. We'll start off with the ESV, and I'll just read it from our sheet if you want to follow along. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in, unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So that's the ESV. Let's read also the New Living Translation. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. Dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray in response to what we just read here in Jude. God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for your concern for the church. What I pray that as we look into this book, Lord, that you would speak to us. Help us to see uh, what you would have for us. You are good, and we thank you for your goodness in your word to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you have that sheet, I would encourage you to, as we go through this series, we'll likely do this same type of exercise, looking at both different translations to really get a feel of what it's saying. I don't guess any of us speak Greek And so these different translations are helpful to us to see. Um, But as you look over uh, those those two uh, translations, you compare and contrast. What 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 do you see there? 
First, I want to give you some similarities there. I, I've, I've, I've highlighted in mine some of the same types of phrases that uh, the two translations are using, and then some that are different. So let's look at a couple of different. Uh, first, let's look at some similarities. These are some of the things that are similar. Uh, Jude initially wanted um, to write about the common salvations, what the ESV says. The, um, the New Living Translation says the salvation we all share. Um, Jude is writing to the called, beloved, and kept. Uh, that's very similar to the way the NLT says it. Um, the phrase ungodly people is used in both translations. That's helpful for us to know. And those ungodly people, both translations say, have denied our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a phrase or two that are different, and it's very early on in here. The, the first one is in the, the uh, he uses the word servant. Did you notice that the NLT says slave? You and I think servants and slave different statuses in life, I would think. The, the language that Jude wrote is, is more in line with the word slave. Slave is a better translation here. It has everything to do with being uh, a person being the property of somebody else. And so slave is, is a good translation. Bond servant is another. Um, and then they, um, the phrase contend for the faith is used in the ESV. The New Living Translation says to defend the faith, urging you to defend the faith. Uh, then there's this crept in unnoticed in the ESV, wormed their way into our churches, uh, according to the New Living Translation. But let's look at who this author is, and I'll be mostly focusing on the ESV as we go through this passage. Um, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So Jude identifies himself as Jude. He's a servant or he's a slave of Jesus, and he's a brother of James. But that's not really the whole story. Jude isn't just a servant of Jesus. Jude is a half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't count his familial status to be talked about, but he is. He's a half-brother of Jesus. He would prefer to say he's just a slave of Jesus. But the earthly parents of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, they had other kids. The Bible speaks about Jesus' four brothers. The Bible mentions that Jesus had sisters, and Jude was one of Jesus' half-brothers. Now, he's considered a half-brother because Jesus... Uh, a half-brother Jesus, because they share the same mother. They don't share the same father, of course. Now, not to get into the weeds too much, but the Catholic Church, in an effort to keep their idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary, would say that Jude is from Joseph and not from Mary. The Bible doesn't give us any reason to think that Mary remained a virgin after Jesus' birth. In fact, the Bible does say in Matthew one twenty-five that she didn't remain a virgin. So Jesus is the oldest brother of Mary's kids, and so Jude is a younger brother to Jesus. And so Jude, the author of this letter, grew up knowing Jesus in a very unique way that only siblings and families can really know someone. So Jude knew Jesus in a very unique way, and I wonder if that was hard for Jude. Could you imagine having Jesus as your older brother? the Son of God, who's 
perfect. Um, but Jude was also the brother of James. James is another half-brother of Jesus and a full brother of Jude. Now, this is the same James who wrote the letter that we call James. James oversaw the church, uh, along with Peter, in Jerusalem, the early church there. And I just want you to know that the author here in Jude is related very closely as a, as a half-brother of Jesus and a full brother of James. And so do you think Jude knows what he's talking about? Before we get into what he says, do you think Jude knows what he's talking about? Do you think he has a authority to say the things that he's going to say? Now, before you think too much of Jude, uh, it's important to know that Jude did not believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. I wouldn't... I'm the older brother. I'm sure my brother wouldn't think nothing special of me until after I died and was raised and went on to heaven too. But, but, but Jude didn't believe uh, in Jesus in what he claimed until after the resurrection. We, we find this uh, outlined for us in Acts 1. But can you blame him? Jude lived in the shadow of Jesus as his older brother, and, and it's hard to come out of that shadow. Uh, let's, let's look at who Jude is writing to, the audience here in verses 1 and 2. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Jude does not write to a specific location. He's not writing to a certain church necessarily. He's writing to a group of people who share a theological identity. Jude writes to the called who are loved by God and kept for Jesus. His desire for his readers are that mercy, peace, and love be given to them by God in abundance. Now, do we think or talk this way about believers, especially believers that we might need to confront? Do we want God's mercy, peace, and love to be given to them in abundance? Do we often think of other churches down the road or in town as the focus of God's love, mercy, and peace? Do we want more of that for them? Jude is getting ready to lay out some hard things, but he starts with a desire that God would give them mercy, peace, and love in abundance. This is a good model for us. Now, let's look at the original intentions that Jude has in verse 3. It says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude wanted to encourage them in their salvation. He wanted to write a letter to encourage them, to build them up, to edify them in their salvation. Jude was a traveling missionary, and he went from church city to city sharing the gospel about his brother. He wanted to encourage his audience in their salvation. The early church, just as much as the church today, benefits from being reminded about our salvation. Jude wanted to edify, to build up the church, to encourage them in their faith. That, that was what he wanted to do with his letter. Instead, in your notes, Jude writes to appeal to them to contend or fight for their faith. Something happened. That a more pressing item popped up. He put his plans aside, and he wrote a different letter altogether. He wrote to them to appeal to them or to fight for their faith to contend for the faith that they had received. There was a problem that Jude needed to address, and this is the letter that we have in our Bible. 
So let's look at the beginning of the problem in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So I've attempted over the past few weeks to warn you that Jude will say some hard things. Jude will say some things that you may not initially like to hear. And the first one pops up here in verse 4. Do you see it? You see what might be difficult to hear? It's the concept, the theological concept of double predestination or reprobation. Here's the ESV phrasing. Who long ago were designated for this condemnation? The New Living Translation says it this way. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago. Now, I understand that just mentioning the word predestination can bring up all types of emotions. This one word can instantly put someone into a whole theological framework that seemingly points to an unloving God. God is a loving God. Absolutely. The Bible tells us over and over and over again that God is love. He is a loving God. And so whatever else we say about God, we must say with the understanding that God is loving. The ideas associated with predestination, or in this case, double predestination, don't negate the love of God. There are times the Bible speaks to ideas about God that lead us to think about God predetermining the outcomes of people before people take action. This is a simple way of understanding predestination. God predetermining the outcomes of people before those people take action. We see this unfold in two different ways. Election, this is God's choosing, and reprobation, this is God condemning. It's hard stuff. This is absolutely hard stuff, especially if we weren't raised in thinking this way. I won't be exhaustive, but there are numerous biblical accounts of God doing this. I'll share one verse from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament that points back to the Old Testament regarding election and reprobation. Here is God speaking in Malachi 1, 2, and 3. He says this, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So Paul picks up on this in Romans and Paul says this in Romans 9, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is hard stuff. How can a loving God predetermine his relationship before someone does anything? From inside the womb, it seems like God, uh, Jacob and Esau, their fates were sealed by God. There are also passages that speak to whosoever will. You're probably familiar with the way the King James puts it. Here's Jesus speaking in Mark 8.34. And when he called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here's how the ESV phrases it. And calling to the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This idea of anyone coming after Jesus or whosoever will come doesn't sound like predestination, does it? No. It sounds like the theological concept of free will. There's no way that we're going to be able to settle this highly emotional debate with our time together this morning. Many smart people are on both sides of this debate, people who love God dearly and love people deeply. The debate shouldn't cause division in the church either. So what should we do with a passage like this in Jude where it says that long ago were designated for condemnation? What should we do with this? I would say wrestle with what the Bible says. We should wrestle with what the Bible says. Struggle with your understanding of what it is saying. Clearly, the Bible teaches that we are free and that God sovereignly controls things from before actions are taken. The Bible teaches both. There are logical ends that you will come to when you lean too heavily on one of these sides that the Bible won't fully support. Leaning too heavily on the free will side of this debate gives us a God who watches and is surprised. And you don't want a God who is surprised and just watches. Leaning too heavily on the predestination side gives us excuse for sin and no responsibility for our action. And you don't want that either. There is tension here. And so it's okay to be uh, in that tension. Be okay with that. Rest in knowing that God is different than we are and that, that his understanding and that his knowledge is complete and it always has been. While ours is limited and growing, God exists outside of time. He created time. From his perspective, everything is settled. Nothing surprises God, nor does it happen outside of his will. We exist inside of time. We are creatures created with limitations. And from our perspective, we're free. We feel free. We experience life. We adjust to it. We are often surprised. We have to deal with things that aren't in our control and aren't of our doing. Wrestle with these two ideas that are in the Bible. Use the Bible to help you understand these concepts that seem to be at odds, but really are not. Some things are just hard. They're hard to understand. Working through difficult things is how we grow, and so let the Bible speak to you and grow you no matter which side of the bait you, you lean on. But let's look back at Jude and see how he describes the problem that the people are facing. In your notes, ungodly people have crept into the church. There are people who are ungodly that have snuck in to the church. Now, the church exists for people who don't know God to come and hear about God. And so naturally the church welcomes people before they come to faith. And if you want to call them ungodly, that's totally fine. The church welcomes those people to come. We welcome the lost. Part of why we exist is to welcome them. 
as they don't know yet as they don't yet know God. But what's happening here is not that. What's happening here is these ungodly people have snuck in and started teaching things. That's different. We're reading a letter that was written to the very early church. This letter was probably written around 30 years after Jesus' life and ministry and his death and resurrection. They did not have the New Testament. Not yet. We're reading it. They're writing it as we're reading this. And so much of what Jesus did shook the Jewish understanding of the Old Testament. The church, the other church, did not have Christian seminaries. Lifeway wasn't founded yet to write Sunday school curriculum yet for the early church. Everything is still new-ish for the church. And it's easy for someone to walk in to the early church with the appearance of faith, with a little bit of knowledge, the right words to say, and begin teaching something false. It is easy to do that today in most churches as well. People get bored quickly. We're not different than these people are. We've heard stories, the stories of the Bible, over and over again, especially if you've been spent a lot of your life in the church, you've heard the stories of the Bible over and over and over again. You want to feel something. We want to feel things. We want to encounter something. We like new things. I was teaching some kids in Ohio a few years ago, and there was this kid who was always at church. He's a pretty good kid. We had a big room uh, that we had large, kind of like our, our kids' church room now, uh, but we had a lot of beanbags, and this kid was sitting on a beanbag, leaning, leaning up against the wall. He was there. He was not engaged with the lesson that, we, that I was teaching, and I, I had tried to get him to connect with the lesson, and he was probably a fourth grader. And his response to me in front of everyone, all the other kids and other adults that were in the room is, I've already heard this story. Have you ever thought that? As the preacher began to preach something, I've already heard that one. This kid, in his nine years old of wisdom, was telling me that, tell me something new. I'm bored with what I know already. He wanted something new. And we're all like that to a point, aren't we? We want something new. We remember the energy that we had when we first began to know God. It was exciting. Everything was new. And we, we equated that newness with God. And so we, in an effort to reconnect with that passion that we once had, we want new stuff to remind us of God. These ungodly people, they've snuck in, and they were teaching something new. Not only was it something new, it was something that was interesting because it made sin not seem so bad. In your notes, they pervert the grace of God. These ungodly people pervert the grace of God. Grace frees us from our sin. Grace is a good thing. And we've all probably thought through the implications of sin and grace. If sin is bad and grace is better, then isn't it okay to sin more so that we can have more grace. This is a thought that Paul had to deal with. Here's what Paul writes in Romans. This is Romans 5, 20 through 6, 3. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul is dealing with this. Jude is dealing with this. We don't change much over the past 2,000 years. The church today is still dealing with this. The freedom from sin tempts us to sin more, to experience more grace. We think it's a good thing. Now, we have the benefit of the whole Bible. We've got the New Testament, but these are the churches that we're reading about. They didn't have the completed canon yet. The ungodly false teachers were teaching a message that was new, and it was interesting because it implied something that we still teach in the world. If it feels good, do it. You've heard that phrase before. You might have even thought that phrase before. Surely you maybe even said it to yourself. But if I stood up here and said to you, if it feels good, do it. Jesus will forgive you. That might pack a crowd. That might get people in here. But is that what the Bible teaches? Does the Bible teach us, if it feels good, do it? No. The verse we looked at earlier from Mark that spoke about the whoever, whosoever will or if anyone will follow Jesus speaks about denying yourself, in fact. In our freedom, we are commanded by Jesus to deny ourselves. That's not a popular thing in the world today, to deny your feelings, to deny your desires, to deny what you want to do. The world today says, if it feels good, do it. The Bible says to deny yourself and follow Jesus. Insert whatever sinful thought or activity you want to here. Jesus says to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. These teachers, instead of denying themselves, in your notes, they deny Jesus Christ Instead of denying themselves, they deny Jesus. These false teachers, they're denying the teachings of Jesus and thus denying Jesus himself, and they're leading others to deny Jesus. If you have a pastor, teacher, or friend telling you to do things that go against what the Bible says, don't listen to them. Listen to the Bible. Even if they tell you even if what they tell you makes you feel good, if it awakens sinful desires, even if it makes you happy, don't follow that teaching. Follow Jesus to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. The purpose of Jude's letter is to warn the church of false teaching inside the church that pervert the grace of God. This teaching, along with these false teachers, ultimately deny Jesus. And they're predestined for punishment. Don't follow them. I'll invite the worship team to come back up. We live in a world with easy access to false teachers. We don't have to wait for them to come into these walls. They're on our screens. They're on our radios or whatever you listen to music on. False teachers, we give them easy access to us. 
we will search out our favorite preachers who make us feel good by telling us things that we already agree with. There are countless, of, countless internet preachers who've snuck into the minds of the faithful by teaching them things that pervert the grace of God. We also give others an open door to our soul by following whatever they say because it makes us feel good. This whole idea of the social media influencer who says Christian things can lead to being led away if you don't know your Bible. Just because someone is good with a camera and knows how to upload a video to the internet doesn't equate them being qualified to teach biblically, especially if they're speaking to your feelings. Be careful. Contend for the faith. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. Let the Bible speak to you. If you've allowed teachers in your mind who have perverted the grace of God, turn from them. Turn to God. Turn to His Word. If you've lived according to, if it feels good, do it. And you're tired of that good feeling not lasting, turn to God. Deny yourself. Follow Jesus. His ways will lead you to joy unspeakable. Would you stand as we pray? God, you are good. Your words to us are also good. Even if we don't fully understand them or don't fully embrace them, Lord, thank you for your words to us. Grow a passion in us for you and your word. Protect us from the world and from teachers who would teach things that would lead us away from the truth found in your word. Help us to dedicate our minds to you our feelings and our emotions to you. Happiness is not the ultimate in our life. It's denying ourselves and following you. That's the ultimate. That's the joy that's unspeakable that you give us. Help us to want that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.